It was a godless sound, one of those low-keyed, insidious outrages of nature which are not meant to be. To call it a dull wail, a doom-dragged whine, or a hopeless howl of chorused anguish and stricken flesh without mind would be to miss its most quintessential loathsomeness and soul-sickening overtones. Sounds a bit like someone who's laid eyes on what some filmmakers have done to the works of H.P. Lovecraft. Allow the cast of Cthulhu to be your guide to the world of H.P. Lovecraft adaptations from the superb to the truly cosmically horrific. I'm Jim Rohner. And I'm James McCormick. And today we'll be reviewing 1963's The Haunted Palace, written by Charles Beaumont, directed by Roger Corman, based, of course, on um, H.P. Lovecraft's novel The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. This was the the first time we'll be reviewing an adaptation of this, but I think probably certainly not the last since The Resurrected is on our radar. I actually was freaking, like, not freaking out, but in my head, but, you know, when we had talked about, we're going to cover this, we're going to cover this, and I'm like, crap, do I... Do I own it? Because I know it came out on a one of those MGM double, double pack. Like especially when Corman, um, they were just pumping out these like Corman double features, or mm-hmm. you know you had like the Mask of the Red Death with something else, and yeah. hmm. you know uh, Premature Burial with something else. So this one was with something, and I remember it being out of print. But then I'm like, all right, I just got. The, the re-release of Vince, the Vincent Price collection, Volume One, that Scream Factory oh, yeah. put back out mm. after being out of print for so many years and being three hundred something dollars for, I will never pay that much. I'm a I'm a physical media collector. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, you know, my girlfriend even says, "I love you." I don't know how you have to have all these movies, <laughs> but I love you. And I'm like, "But honey, I need to know if I have that copy of you know whatever." Mm-hmm. That I need to see at that one moment. So, it's on. It was on there, and I'll talk a little bit about some of the, um, especially the uh, Kim Newman introduction of the film, which is a little fun. Oh, interesting. Thing that they filmed this year too, like which is cool. Like earlier in the year, they filmed it at some point. Oh. So, yeah. So they they actually went back and like did some stuff, and the like the copy that you have. I don't know. This Blu-ray looks gorgeous. Like it's just pop the colors pop like mm-hmm. and I, you know the reds and the just even though it's a very subtle film at points certain yeah. certain elements of like the horror that come out you're like oh wow that looks pretty freaking good for yeah. 1963 yeah i must say i was kind of surprised that a, a roger corman film could look so good which I, I know the mask of the red death he would make like after yeah. this and, and yeah. that is good but i mean I know oh, what you're saying. Yeah, I, I haven't seen a ton of stuff that Corman has directed. I've seen a decent amount of stuff that he's produced, and so what comes along with that? Low-budget, schlock, quick production, and so you kind of... It implies sloppy and low-budget, and this... I mean, this was certainly obviously done on a set, but it doesn't oh, have yeah. a feel of, of cutting corners or anything kind of being um, low-budget to it, to be honest with you. Yeah, and, and a lot of that has to do with, I think, um, the cinematographer, Floyd Crosby, for this mm-hmm. film, because even in the introduction that Kim Newman does, and he makes a great point about it, this, you know, Floyd somehow makes these sets look, like, grand mm-hmm. and epic, the way they're shot, like, especially scenes when they're walking into the big layer, you know, under underground in, in the palace, and you're like, Oh my God, this place looks huge. And he even says, I think even the, I think you could put the the house from the house of Usher in this palace. Mm-hmm. That's how big this place is. That's how it <laughs> appears. Even though like when you go to the actual town of Arkham, it looks very small and quaint, like, like a set. But I think that's like the charm of it. Like, you know, Corman was known for never losing money. With any film he's ever made, except for one, he keep he kept saying, "Oh, my the favorite film he made, which also another Charlie Beaumont, um, written film, uh, The Intruder, mm-hmm. starring William Shatner, the race, the race like film, like about like racial tension, which Roger Corman making a racial tension film, it's really good. Mm. It's actually really good, <laughs> and he swears he never made money from it. And then it, I think up until maybe like maybe ten years ago, I think he said." Well, that's kind of a lie. I, I did make a bit of a profit from that one, too. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that about him because, like, no matter what, he – Corman knew how to stretch a buck. And, like, you know, he, he could take three cents and make it a dollar and, and, and convince you that it was a dollar. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the way I look at, like, his films. Like, somehow, a lot of times – 
I mean, later on, the more of the produced stuff, you know, neither here or there, you know, like all those like Sharktopus and, sure. you know, yeah, like all those produced sci-fi channel movies are like, okay, these are, yeah, yeah. but this is like, to me, like he was on a roll and, you know, basically taking AIP to like different heights with these Poe adaptations and then sprinkling in Lovecraft, who wasn't as known, but mm-hmm. let's... Why not take from him too? Like, and and they credit him, which is amazing. I forgot they actually credited Lovecraft for this. Yeah, you know? and, and that's that's a good uh good uh, starting point because normally I, we start these episodes with a little bit of background on the source material, and I'll certainly get to that. But this is interesting to kind of talk a little bit about the the background on the production itself because this is, as I think we may have mentioned before the first adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft material, I'd say probably in history. I guess you could probably make some arguments about some obscure stuff here and there. But by by and large, if you go on IMDb, the very first credit that Lovecraft has as a writer whose work was adapted is 1963's The Haunted Palace. And it's interesting because it comes in the midst of American international pictures like Poe Cycle. I mean, House Mm -hmm. of Usher, Pit in the Pendulum, The Raven... Uh, a few other things came before this one. Then you have this, and then the Mask of the Red Death and the Tomb of Lygia would come afterwards. And um, yeah, it's got nothing to do with Poe other than the title, The Haunted Palace, um, which is actually kind of hilarious because they miscredit him in this film as Edgar Allan Poe, A-L-L-E-N. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I, 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 but it's weird. They they you know, credit him wrong, but then at the end when they show... And then and, and uh, Price is like reciting the end of the poem. They credit him correctly. <laughs> it's like, yeah, uh, God, of course, poor poor Poe, right? Can't get a break. And I did I did a uh, look up uh, on Blu-ray.com the review of this one, and and they they do talk about it. I think that there's a special feature on on the disc which talks a little bit about um, the development of this, and I, I'm wondering if that does address the fact that. Was Roger Corman really intent on making an H.P. Lovecraft adaptation, but the studio was like, no, we got to make it a Poe thing, so this is how he kind of slips it in there? Yeah, that basically, there is a, like a 11-minute Roger Corman interview that I think he probably, I don't know if it's from the original DVD, it might be, so it's probably like 15, 20 years old now, which is kind of crazy to think, but he does say like, and you know, and, and Roger Corman's very, you know, beautiful tone that he has he has like that grandfatherly tone mm, yeah. that when you hear him you can't help but listen to him speak because it's this elder statesman of hollywood that somehow fought against a lot of weird shit in in the industry and he even says you know the basically because of the po films do, were doing so well mm-hmm. but the not, not he didn't say it necessarily but like kim newman says he, he had a kind of because it was harder to get Poe stories that were easily adaptable to like an actual hour and a half, like, you know, full fledged movie, even though Mask of the Red Death was coming after this one. But um, Corman himself says, yeah, you know, we, we, we love doing Poe stuff, but I wanted to put in some Lovecraft because I, you know, I thought that was potential there for mm-hmm. a different type of story. And the way this film is shot and the way, the Poe films are shot are different. I mean, at least from his point of view as a filmmaker, he wanted it to look different. He wanted it to feel different. He wanted to make it feel, even though it's crazy stuff going on, more realistic, reality-based, as opposed to a lot of the Poe adaptations that they did, which are more grand than just like, you know, like bombastic. (laughs) This one it, you know, no matter even though the perform some of the performances are like you know rightfully so should be bombastic of you know especially we'll talk about price, <laughs> um, yeah like it is intentional but I I think it's like you said I think Corman had a use Poe's name because Poe's name was the marketable one yeah but a Lovecraft has a lot of potential I'm still gonna credit him too like as a story by but yeah we'll take this poem that has a cool name. <laughs> You know, because it's, I mean, they talk about it, you know, the, the village and his palace being haunted. I mean, it's a different type of haunting, you know, it's not the typical, mm-hmm. you know, you, you know, I remember as a kid and, you know, hearing about this movie and being a big Poe fan going, 
huh, okay, it's a haunted house movie. Then you watch it, and you're like, oh no, okay, it's not that at all. It's just the title. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, and, and that that is interesting that one of the changes because obviously th- this is a a, a long um, a long source material. Uh, the the case of Charles Dexter Ward is I I believe maybe the first actual novel that he that Lovecraft writes. So there there have to be a lot of changes, especially considering this this was cut down to or not cut down, but it, it's less than an hour and a half long. You know, it's a, it's a it's a quick, neat and tidy story. Um, and one of the changes that I found very interesting. Um, it basically becomes kind of like a gothic horror film. It becomes like, yeah, a haunted house story. Like, I, I don't want to be so cliche as to say the house becomes a character, but the house itself as a as an establishment and what it stands for becomes more of a symbol than necessarily was in the source material. And, 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 and I could, you can see why. They had a real kind of castle to film in. They had a location. They don't have a lot of budget, so they're going to use it to the best of their ability. And... To Corman's credit, um, that opening, not even the opening, oh yeah, the opening sequence when we discover Kerwin by the villagers following that woman to the cat, like, it's a spooky little sequence, like, who's that shadowy figure out in the fog, and like, we're just kind of getting glimpses of her, and like, where is she yeah. going, like, it's a it's a well-made lead-up to this story, which I, I gotta say, sorry Roger Corman, didn't really expect from Roger Corman. Oh, I know. I mean, and I think that's what happens with Corman a lot. Like, like people, like they look. I think you know, the longer he's been in in around, like people look at his production and like how he would cut corners and like start people off with like you know his his produced films. But they forget that he he really loved directing. He mm-hmm. really loved to try to you know make films that were you know profitable fun but also you know i mean you look at this old like you know like the you know crab monsters you know and stuff like that <laughs> attacking the crab you know they're they're, they're tongue-in-cheek you know you know they're not i mean he made them seriously to make money but they were having fun they were like you know making these ridiculous films but yeah like this and mask of the red death to me are like two fantastic like well shot well-directed films and like uh, that's what i love about like going back and watching some of these old like corman films going wow he had a good eye like he actually and i think it it has a lot to do with like him also being a producer knowing who to hire around him to make him look even better Mm -hmm. you know you have like great music you have great acting you have great cinematography and even like you know again the editing is really done well in this film too. Like how it, it the pace is like, mm-hmm. just you're like okay, I'm 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 in for this. If you've never heard of this story, you're in because like man, and and it's such a tragic story too. Yeah, it's and I think we can both say like it's an it's an adaptation that changes a lot of the source material, but I think does it effectively in making it maybe not a great adaptation, but it's a it's a right. pretty good movie, and especially for you know to think that. The case of Charles Dexter Ward, this long novel, which nobody would say is the entryway you should take into Lovecraft's work. This is the one that Corman's like, I want to show this to the world. It's a really, yeah, ambitious move. And sure, The Haunted Palace, like, if that's what you got to do to get eyes on it, to bring money and people in, fine. You know, I I, I drew a comparison. It's probably not a perfect one, but it'd almost (laughs) be like if From Beyond was released, but they call it The Dead Zone, because Stephen King was more popular at that point, and there's kind of a tangential connection, maybe. Because uh, even in you know the 1980s, Lovecraft was starting to gain a little bit of ground, especially because of Stuart Gordon, almost single-handedly. Uh, but yeah. still yeah. wasn't hugely popular, certainly not to the extent that he is now. And of course, because this is the first screen adaptation of Lovecraft, it's the first time, I think, that a lot of audiences were probably being exposed to these names of Cthulhu and Yogg Sothoth and what the Necronomicon is, um, which is I cool know. since the the novel does tie into a lot of the Cthulhu mythos. Um, it's a fun little note that Coppola wrote some additional dialogue for this, which people forget Coppola, Scorsese, a lot of filmmakers came up in the Corman school of low-budget filmmaking. Yeah, um, Spiel, Spielberg also. It's crazy to think that Corman gave all these people and kept doing it like mm-hmm. through um, different generations of filmmakers with yeah. Then he late like later on Joe Dante and like Alan, you know like all these different directors. You go oh, wow like he he's some because and Ron Howard basically saying hey you want to make films you're gonna do it for basically nothing <laughs> but I'm gonna I'm gonna show you the way 
Yep. Have fun. Make mistakes, but make me a dollar. You know, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't forget where you came from. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, and and then of course, um, you mentioned written by Charles Beaumont, who I primarily know because he wrote extensively on the Twilight Zone. Yep. Two of yep. my favorite episodes, uh, The Howling Man and Living Doll. Living Doll being Talking Tina. Yeah. Talking Tina. Yeah. I'm I talking love, Tina yeah. and you better be nice to me. It's like, oh yeah. dear God. But yeah, and the Howling Man is is a masterpiece. That one is that one still creeps me out because it's so well done and like it's such a simple story of is is there evil in the world? And yeah, there is. It's it's Satan and mm. he's this howling man that a guy lets out because he, you know, he's like, these, these monks are crazy. Mm-hmm. No, they're not. They're not crazy. They were actually holding the evil in. And I, I, what I love about that twist is it's not even a twist. It's just showing that no matter what, it's going to keep happening. Mm-hmm. It's a cycle. And like the, and the devil will always escape. And, ah, uh, he's so good. Like, I think he did like 22 episodes of the twilight zone, which he, it's funny too. Cause, um, uh, Corman talks about Beaumont, but also Kim Newman in the introduction says it's funny because um, Richard Matheson, another amazing writer, he was, you know, he was writing the earlier Poe adaptations and then jokingly said, um, Poe, you know, like Poe adapta- adaptations by Matheson made sense because, like, he knew how to like take those stories and just meld them together. But um, Beaumont was more dark and was better suited for Lovecraft. <laughs> and it makes sense because like, he's like, would would a Matheson like adaptation of uh, Lovecraft story work? Of uh, yeah, probably would. But you know, it just works so well because because of the work that both of these guys did on the Twilight Zone, they were these great genre writers and that's why like this just makes sense you know like you know i'm trying to think what other ones he did like number 12 looks just like you um a fun one you know like like yeah it's just so good like you know yeah it it was going going through his catalog i i I must and it's been a while since i've really dug into the twilight zone i i remember i bought the you know the entire collection and then a couple weeks later was it Hulu or Prime? I was like, oh, by the way, here's all of them. It's like, cool. I didn't need to buy all these. Um, the Howling Man. I must say, The Howling Man and uh, Living Doll were the only two that I really recognized. I know, mm-hmm. I know, I've seen um, other ones, like especially uh, I forget the name of it. The one, but there's one that involves the mob. Um, oh yeah, I know. Yeah, and then there's Long Distance Call, which is like he co-wrote, which mm-hmm. is a great one with the someone's calling but yeah. it's like it's the husband from the from death like you know the, the the cemetery it's you know it's it's funny like when you you think about it you're like did i watch it then you think no i probably watched all these episodes mm-hmm. i just it's been so long since you've seen some because i think with the twilight zone how how we view the twilight zone is we t- we tend to go back to episodes we love mm-hmm. before we go back to some of the ones that we might have seen once or twice, but didn't connect to us as well as others. And yeah. I, I, I think that's everybody. Like, no matter what anyone says, unless you have the set and you want to watch it from, like, beginning to end, you handpick those episodes. You want to either show to friends, show to family, watch with, you know, your loved one. And and, and it's what I love about The Twilight Zone because it has that weird connection with us, you know? So a little bit of background on the case of Charles Dexter Ward um, it was written in 1927, but not published uh, until uh, in, a, in an abridged form in Weird Tales in May and June 1941. It was published posthumously because Lovecraft did not like it. He called it a cumbrous, creaking bit of self-conscious antiquarianism. Um, what does that even mean? It well, it just means he didn't like it. Uh, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I I won't say this is my one of my favorite of his, but I won't say it's one of my least favorites. I like it overall. It's pretty it's pretty long, um, and it, it does kind of feel long in some parts, but I think it does a great job of, of setting a scene, and I think it's because um, it takes place in Providence, which a lot of Lovecraft stories don't, and so because of that, he actually infuses a lot of real locations into the story, and I've been to Providence. I've taken the, the H.P. Lovecraft walking tour, which... Um, you know, has a lot of uh, 
has a lot of these real life locations. Yes, you can see where Lovecraft was born and raised. You can see the house that he lived in when he was when he died. But you can also see here's this house that he was writing about in Charles Dexter Ward. Here's this house that he was writing about. And so like there, these are real locations that he was trying to to lend it a almost sort of a realism to his surreal or fantasy stories. Um, and the inspiration for at least uh, uh, Ward's house was a, a, a real house that exists at 140 Prospect Street in Providence, which I've been to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've not been in. There's, you know, it's a private residence with a, a, you know, a wrought iron gate in front of it. But I've been there. I've seen it. I have a picture on my phone. I'll post it on the Facebook page. But this is so you can get a sense of when when you're thinking of, of uh, Charles Dexter Ward's house, it was this one because uh, when he was younger, his aunt told him a story that the house was haunted and so I guess that always kind of stayed with him, I guess, hence maybe later the the, the haunted palace. But um, And if anyone ever does have a chance to go to Providence and take the H.P. Lovecraft walking tour, it's really cool. You can do it on your own. They give you a little map. It takes maybe an hour and a half, two hours. It's really, really cool. I have plenty of pictures, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but the one thing, one of the things this gives us is Joseph Kerwin is, is arguably probably Lovecraft's best villain which he doesn't have a whole lot of villains but in this one it's it's an actual villain like you know mustache twiddling i want to take over the world i want to cause pain and destruction Mm -hmm. this is a guy who when he comes back on the scene calls up the body of the guy who defeated him just to torture that person again (laughs) like that's some real vindictive shit um but uh, i neither james nor i are really going to talk too much about the story because it's it is very long, and if we if we wanted to go into great detail about what separates the source material from the haunted palace, we'd be here for for far too long. We're 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 mostly going to be focusing on talking about um, the haunted palace, which um, overall I'd say I really liked. Oh yeah, I, I I love. It's been a while since I've seen this one, but I mean, you really can't go wrong with Vincent Price. No, you know that's 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 the first thing. Like I like to always say, like even earlier before when I got home. And before I passed out for a few hours before coming on, <laughs> you know, um, I actually tweeted, you know, tweeted out like, you know, love, you know, pr- price is just always great. Like mm. no matter what, like no matter the film, it, it's just a fact. Even if the film's shit, he's great. Mm-hmm. And it's, and, and it, he always works. And in this, he's got to play two ro- completely different roles that are battling within. And it, he does it really well. Like, I mean, it's shown by like makeup, of course, you know, like the garish makeup of Kerwin <laughs> and like, you know, but like, it's funny how he could go from being like this charming, like loving man, you know, Charles Dexter Ward mm-hmm. and goes to this evil, like you said, he, he, he might as well have been twiddling his mustache. There's like, there's one scene in particular when he goes to the one funeral and they all stop and they look up and he just tips his hat. And he just gives this look of like glee, <laughs> and it's so subtle, like that. I mean, you know, the whole tip in the hat is a little over the top, but like then he just kind of almost gives a little smile, like a smirk. Yeah. That like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I made sure that he died, it's, and I'm gonna do the rest of the rest of you. <laughs> I, I would say it's more like a sneer, which is yes. which yeah. is is wonderful because you you say he plays two different characters, and even aside from the makeup. Um, the only real way you differentiate between is he Charles Dexter Ward or is he Joseph Kerwin is through that sneer and through the little eyebrow raise that he does yeah. where it's like, oh, fuck, he's evil now. Yeah, and, and you're like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, and his tone of voice is, it's so amazing to me how just a subtle change in his voice, he goes from like, oh, Vincent Price, yes, please comfort me that, you know, we're we're safe here, but then, and then the next oh. scene, it's like, it's just a... a, a not even dramatic tone change in his voice where like okay you are really creeping me out now and i can't trust you anymore and it's a bit the film is a little bit clunky in how it changes like how he indicates he's possessed like he just kind of stares at the painting and all of a sudden he's like i'm kerwin now but you know yeah they, they didn't really have a whole lot of money and so they're relying on vincent price to do it and for the most part he carries the weight yeah, I mean, and that's why he works so well with Corman and like Corman's productions because, you know, it's it's sad to say, you know, sad to even realize that before like these po- the Poe, you know, adaptations and stuff, he wasn't doing so well mm-hmm. in Hollywood. He was kind of like, ah, you're old news, you know. It's it's and like, what a freaking shame that is. Like yeah. that, 
And it, hell, it happens today. It happens to a lot of like really good actors that you're like, huh, where'd they go? Then you see that they've done 20 something films and they're lower budget. And, you know, I'm not even, you know, but you look at someone sadly like, like, you know, lazy actors like a Bruce Willis or Steven Seagal, <laughs> who's never, you know, whatever. But like even a Bruce Willis, who to me is a is actually a great actor, but he doesn't give a shit anymore. Does not. Yeah. Zero. Zero shit. Price, Price, he always gave a shit. He always looked at every role as important. Mm-hmm. This is going to, you know, he's like, this. no matter what, if even it was slumming, it didn't matter. I'm going to give it 110% because that's what a, a trained actor does. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're going to push the limit to what you could show. And, you know, this is just like a great performance amongst a me- many great performances, especially in these Poe adaptations and whatnot. Like that alone. And it's funny, too, because like um, one of the actors, Elisha Cook Jr., who is the really short guy okay. from, you know, he, you know, right away, I'm like, all right, yeah, Elisha Cook Jr., like, also in The House on Haunted Hill mm-hmm. with Vincent Price. Okay. As the caretaker, the one that, that tells them, this place is haunted, you know, you got to get out of here, you know, this is not a good place, you know. So it's funny that he's in another movie with house and, like, a haunted house type, like, you know, quote-unquote title and whatnot, so. Yeah, I mean, think of even uh, The Crimson Cult. Like, Boris Karloff was the standout there because he was still giving it his all, whereas Christopher Lee, yeah. meanwhile, is just sleepwalking through the whole thing. Like, yep, it, yeah. it, it shows, too, that Christopher Lee is sleepwalking <laughs> through this whole thing. Um, no, it, it's really great, and, and I mean, it, the film relies so much on him uh, because of how they had to change the perspective of the story. I mean, the, the story is... It's this omniscient kind of third-person perspective, but we don't really see or have a lot of insight onto the internalizations of what Charles Ward is doing, especially when he starts trying to call up bodies and when Kerwin shows up. And it leads to a great kind of tension and mystery in the sense of who's Ward and who's Kerwin. Like, oh, he was acting really strange and now he seems to be fine. Like, who's who and what's what? The film is told almost entirely from the perspective of Ward and the villagers, so we know what's happening we know that he's possessed we know all this kind of stuff but at the same time it plays into this being the gothic horror movie you know the one where you know there's we're in this spooky castle and there's hauntings and there's strange things going on like it it plays into that so i'm fine with those kind of changes too especially if we get to see more vincent price yeah and and that's the thing and like and they also surround him with like really good like you know actors around him too that are yeah Mm -hmm. Especially face-wise, you know, like a lot of these actors, have great faces. Like that's kind of like, I, I look at newer films, and I don't know. There's something about, you know, once in a while you get some good like character actor faces in there, but this is a time when you know, like Lon Chaney Jr., who, you know, was a little rough around the edges at this time because of alcoholism and stuff, and you could tell. But again, another f- fine performance. Like he's just. Like a Karloff, where he's given his all mm-hmm. in this form. So it's go creepy as, you know, Simon Orn, you know, like just coming back from, is he coming back from the dead? Like, you know, he's he's the caretaker, which before my, like, well, when I was rewatching it, my girlfriend just joked, like, oh, well, he's doing a terrible job. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, it's kind of funny because it's almost like he's this spectral, like, you know, um, entity that, only came back into um, realization because Ward is in this building now and he he's back to help his master. So he has to <clears throat> keep him inside. He has to keep him in the, the palace because, because of the painting and how it, like, you know, is going to take over. And, like, that's kind of like a thing, like you said earlier, like, it's, it's subtle, like, oh, is it the painting? Is it the whole palace? I think it's it, it's supposed to be the whole house house itself is mm-hmm. just as haunt, haunted in a way that's not typical ghost ooh boo you know it's more yeah. like this evil spirit that's just so powerful that even though he's burnt alive which that's another joke that I always love about these quote unquote witch movies and whatnot 
don't ever give the freaking guy or the or the woman enough time to curse everybody and <laughs> and their you know their their you know pe- you know their relatives in the future. Don't don't give them time. Just just cut their tongue out and burn them alive. <laughs> but they never do that. They just go. You know what? Talk talk for three minutes. Curse us all. Ah, eh, fuck you. <laughs> and and then you burn them alive. But then you know, 110 years later, you damned your whole like line of of you know people that that had nothing to do with this mm-hmm. you know like and that's what's crazy too about this film is these people this this town is so haunted by Kerwin that you know their relatives are like oh man uh, any any sign of Kerwin coming back they're fucking freaked the hell out like like you could tell when Ward and his wife come to this town you know of Arkham they're 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 already messed up <laughs> because of this curse. Yeah, you know this curse that you know people are deformed. You know you you have this freaking beast of a son, <laughs> it that's living in the freaking attic <laughs> that feeds on like raw meat. You know that's like creepy shit, especially for 1963. Don't don't and, and they don't even explain it. They don't really you know a lot of <laughs> the stuff's not explained. It's just that's the town. People have no eyes. It's caked over. Yeah, you know, like like dwarf men, like with little legs crawling. Yeah, you know, like what what am I watching here? Like it's 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 really they go for that love Lovecraftian horror that just makes you feel uneasy. Yeah, you it, know, there's there's this sense, especially from the villagers, of like this is just how it is. And now, and yeah, there it's not going to change. And it, there's a, I, I I giggled when there's an initial exchange when Ward shows up to the village. He's like, are, are are you telling me that I should just ignore this house and move away? And the guy's like, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Oh, that that whole that whole introduction to the townsfolk, and like Ward, like, oh, you know, you New Englanders and how like polite you are, you know, like <laughs> you like because it's like what the what the hell's wrong with this place? Like what the hell? Like like and then you have the doctor. Um, you know, Doctor uh, was it Willet, mm-hmm. which is another name that's used in Lovecraft, right? Willet. Yeah, Will Willet is is the the doctor from the story. Yeah. Yeah, which I love, and you know Frank Maxwell playing that character. He's like, he's the only one that's like, hey guys, sh- stop with this freaking curse. We would. It's just a. I'm the I'm the science of this mm-hmm. of this town, and you know what? It's just something that happened. Like people are mutated. I, you know. Over time, this is what happens. Mm. Sometimes, you know, there's 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 ways that this happens, but everyone else is like, no, it's a curse, it's a curse, and it's funny that the doctor is the one that's actually mistaken. Like, like yeah. the townsfolk are are right. Like, we're we're screwed. You know, I, I because mean, of Kerwin. In, that's in, how powerful he was. You yeah, know? in in the Crimson Cult, the doctor or the cult specialist was also the one who was like, oh oh, witches are real in this whole shit. Like, oh my god, what is happening? And it, it is. It ties into once again this idea of like the scientific objective mind that is is drawn to the tangible. There are things that exist outside of that that reality that are are, are real. And and this village, yeah, you just get the sense. I got the sense at least the sun never comes up in this village. No, the sun is never no. shining. People aren't happy. It's just kind of like you're born into this, you live in it, and then you die, and it's just this this burden of this existence which yeah maybe that started with this curse that Kerwin called down upon people or maybe it's just especially with the ending of this film as it is you get the sense of there's no there is no end to this there is no escaping it this is just always how it's going to be and just how much of a burden that is on these people it's it's funny too that um you know you you understand the idea of, of Kerwin you know possessing his his uh you know his i i think it's his great grandson or something cuz it's like 111 yeah. years afterwards but then <clears throat> the film also does like oh and to to key you in that these are also descendants of the original villagers all the actors are coming back <laughs> we're we're bringing we're bringing everyone back and it's the easiest way to do it uh, there's a, another film like that city of death that's or horror hotel as it was called in america <laughs> a terrible name but <laughs> but again christopher lee horror movie but that it's actually a really well done movie that i i think even though it's not really 
Lovecraftian, I think, fits in this type of world of like gothic horror, like cursed, you know, cursed townsfolk mm-hmm. who are now this whole town is just, just ter- you know, basically always in a fog, yeah. always darkness. Now, no matter what time of day it is, it always feels like it's two in the morning, mm-hmm. and like you're about to hear like howling at the moon, and like you mm-hmm. know. And spooky, and like you know, I love that when they go into the town. It's called the Burning Man Tavern, <laughs> yeah, that's right. which yeah. you know why it's called that. Mm-hmm. It's like such a little like, hey, <laughs> get it? This is what happened. We burned the man alive. Yeah, you know? <laughs> I mean, just the sheer fact that that macabre, <laughs> dark portion of their history is now like a part of the current legacy, and just like, yeah, it says a whole lot about these people what they've lived through what they're born into it's yeah it's a you, you kind of get the sense that no one is born and lives in this village and like well i'm gonna go to the city now and learn to become a doctor it's like no you're going no. to do what you can to contain this curse to take care of these deformed um members of our society which i, I even like that because it, it has shades of like shadow over Innsmouth in the sense of mm-hmm. What is happening to these town to this town, and what are happening to the people that are in this town? Um, whereas, like, especially even the the house, the manor, the castle, the palace, whatever you want to call it, finding the the layers of uh, you know the physical layers, but also time remind yeah. me of like the rats in the walls too. So it, yes. it's you know you also do get the sense of Beaumont and or Corman are also Lovecraft fans, and so they're going to mm-hmm. make a a Lovecraft story, even if the public is just like. Oh, how silly! This guy keeps women in in the basement so that he can call up this this weird um, creature oh, yeah. deity that we're not really going to see because once again we don't have the budget. We're just going to kind of wave the camera in front of you and then like you saw something horrific. Trust us, it was horrific. It was pretty. It was pretty bad. Well, it, it what what I love about that though is and and Kim Newman jokes about that how if even if you freeze frame it, it still is blurry and like this mm-hmm. really creepy image that he's like. It's probably just a old creature from the Black Lagoon mask that they just kind of repurposed <laughs> on on someone, and like just did this effect. But yet, that's what makes it like feel like Lovecraftian, where it's like this beast, this something, this elder god that you can't really know what it looks like. And mm. whenever someone looks at it, they're screaming like bloody murder because it's the worst thing they've ever seen. So. Mm-hmm. I kind of like that Corman and company try to depict that idea of Lovecraft, like, you know, oh my God, this thing is so horrific that I can't even explain what I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's showing you that feeling. It's not, you know, a big elder God. You're like, oh wow, that thing is, you know, like in the mist, like those things are so majestic. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, they're horrifying, but also majestic. This thing is like, yeah, we have no budget, but you know what? We're gonna give you the the feeling that whatever that thing is, yeah, yeah, you know what? That's why she's screaming. She actually sees what it is. We can't show you the public it because yeah. you'll freaking you'll you'll die, you know, from it. Yeah, which is is a little bit cheesy, I guess. But I so yes. prefer that to, <laughs> um, you know, whatever tentacles on everything. Yeah, you know? whatever half baked <laughs> CGI cr- like creation you're gonna throw at us, and you're like, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I Thanks. guess. Yeah, I guess that's horrifying. Or and even in the seventies, the Dunwich Horror, like we don't see anything; we just see the camera's POV of it, and people are terrified. And that's enough for me. Yeah, that, that's what I want. Like less is more, mm-hmm. especially when you're trying to 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 depict something so horrific that, yeah, you know what? Let's make it a little cheesy, but it's still like very fun. And like, and you know what? And like you said. You could tell Corman and Beaumont and people are fans of Lovecraft that they want to try to depict it, as opposed to people that say they're fans but only read. They probably not, haven't even read lo- many Lovecraft stories, but they just know mm-hmm. about the mythos. Yeah, and they love the mythos. They don't really know the stories. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that's also a big problem. Like like with a lot of adaptations we've done, where it's like. Do you actually get Lovecraft? Yeah. Do you get like what where what his horror actually where his horror lies. Yeah. And and with you know? with this one it, it hints at it too, because at the end it's like I now oh. I, I must have 
I must <laughs> admit, I, I expected at the end that this was going to be a happy ending. Like, okay, the the, man, the manor is burnt down, everyone is safe and fine, and then that final shot at the end, like, no. No, it's not, because Ward is now Joseph Kerwin. And, oh, he's, yeah, forever. Yeah. And this is, and and that's that's horrifying on one level, because, like, oh, God, like, this this evil ancestor is now, like, back in, in contemporary times. But also, if you think of what Kerwin wanted to do was open a portal to other dimensions to bring mm-hmm. these gods in to destroy reality. So, like, it's not just, oh, this good man named Charles Dexter Ward is now gone. It's, n- no, this man is now going to work to bring about the end of, like, all of mankind. And what what I love about it is, too, that the whole time, you remember, it's called the Haunted Palace. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even though we see this painting and, like, it's, you know, the town is cursed because this palace, they never got to burn it down. Like, you know, they never did that. They only killed the man not realizing, oh, we need to burn the whole thing. That'll stop the curse. Mm-hmm. No, the curse will, is forever. Yeah. Like, Kerwin is that powerful because he has the powers of from the old gods that, yeah, we're damned. It's actually worse now because he's he's going to go back to Boston. Yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, there's a lot of, like, people that are followers that he'll probably find more, more of them. And, yeah, like, you, you could have easily done, like, you know, I'm surprised... Corman didn't make a sequel to to this because it ends on such a note where like what I love about Price is that he plays such great villains mm-hmm. that you know something like the abominable Dr. Fives it's such a great villain that you wanted to see another film and then they made a sequel Dr. Fives Rises Again which is <laughs> it's a fun sequel you know it, you know Price is so good that you're convinced and then just that look and he's speaking Enough like Ward. Now he realizes I have to pretend to be Ward, mm-hmm. and I love that. Like he just gives that look, like because you're no, you know, you're thinking, okay, it's got to be a happy ending, you know, because that's how these films leave, leave you off, you mm-hmm. know, like oh, okay, we're going to the movies. Oh man, a lot of crazy stuff happened, but you know what? Good triumphs at the end. No, not in this world. Not yeah. in Lovecraft. No. Good, good is dead. Mm-hmm. Sorry, guys. And I think you could even make the argument, too, that the ending of this film, because I know James loves a downer of an ending, mm-hmm. there's more of a downer ending in this than in the source material, because in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, Kerwin is annihilated, and all the nefarious people that he has been collaborating with all over the world, they are destroyed as well. Now, yeah. it is implied that they are destroyed in part because they called up another entity another thing they couldn't control you know the re- recurring line yeah. in charles dexter ward is don't call up that which you cannot control and they do that for the purpose of stopping Kerwin. so it's kind of this deal with the devil sort of thing but at the same time this evil nefarious character is vanquished reduced to his essential salts as they call it in this one nope Kerwin alive and well and probably going to bring about the end of the world which, which is crazy to think that somehow, even though it's like like you you said you know earlier like is it a is it the best adaptation not necessarily but it almost like adapts Lovecraft better than the the source material <laughs> right. like it's almost like you know what Lovecraft we could do one better it's kind it's actually kind of like Frank Darabont yeah mm-hmm. his ending for the mist is like oh yeah even Stephen King's like god damn it. I wish I thought of that ending. It's better, yeah. yeah. <laughs> God damn it! How did you think of a? Yes. How did you think of more of a king ending than I did? You yes. know. <laughs> so it is possible, especially considering how little Lovecraft thought of the, of his own story to begin with. Good um, point. That that's a good point too. Yeah, maybe maybe that's why Lovecraft didn't like it because it wasn't dark enough. He didn't he didn't know how to land it, the stick the the landing. You know, the ending. You know. <laughs> right now, now of course, if he if he complained about the antiquarianism of the uh, original one, then I guess making a gothic horror film would, would maybe not have have uh, pleased him too much. But I, I would be, I don't know, because he died um, so young, I, I've always kind of wondered, like, what would he think of? Hmm. I mean, I know they had movies when he was alive, but what would he think of movie adaptations of his kind of stuff? Would he hate them? Would he kind of be like, oh, that's interesting? Or would he would he be the curmudgeon guy where it's like, would he be Alan Moore, basically? He, he'd be Alan Moore. He'd be Steve Ditko. He'd be like, <laughs> he, you know what? Like, Lovecraft... It's kind of weird to say it, but like Lovecraft just reminds me of like he he would be he. I wonder if if Lovecraft liked Anne Rand, you know, like, <laughs> like 
I don't know why I have that feeling. Like, he, like, 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 when was the Fountainhead? When did that come out? Like, I, uh, I think that was the fifties, but I'm not so, sure. So I'm thinking, I, if he was still alive, he'd probably be a follower of Anne Rand, or like, or would really like what she was doing, even though it was a woman, and I hate women. Maybe I'd like that, you know. If it was a guy, if it was a man, I'd like it more. But you know, <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's I don't know. It's hard to say because I know I know Ayn Rand and Atlas Shrugged and all that is sort of about like exceptionalism, and right, he, here's right. a guy who's instead more like about cosmicism and man's human kinds, I should say, yeah. insignificance. So would those two things? Did he believe in exceptionalism? In 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 uh, on a micro context, it'd be very it'd be very interesting. Yeah. Um, one thing I don't know, I shouldn't read this whole thing, but you reminded me because uh, as I was, I wasn't rereading the case of Charles Dexter Ward, but I was re-listening to um, the the episodes that uh, um, HP Podcraft got uh, HPPodcraft.com did. Wow, the HP Lovecraft um, literary podcast. They, they're five-part series on the case of Charles Dexter Ward, and they keep me into, um, they didn't want to get political, but they say, just Google Lovecraft and Republicans. Um, so I, I won't read the whole thing. Perhaps I'll post it on the Facebook page and or in the show notes, but the the, the coup de gras, I guess, or, or the, the final line of this, and I'll, I'll, I won't read the whole thing, like I said, but just the end. Intellectually, the Republican idea deserves the tolerance and respect one gives to the dead. So, um, so <laughs> I, I at least know Lovecraft was not a fan of the Republican Party and Republican ideals. He, he, in a much more flowery and elaborate and acerbic way, he he kind of tears uh, a, a lot of their stuff down. So I, I don't know because I know Republicans love Ayn Rand, right? Um, so I don't know. Maybe there's something. Maybe there's something there. Uh, some type of connection. I don't know. How do we get in this topic? I don't even remember. I don't even know, but that, that's what we do. We do we, we do tangents. You know, right. we can't help it. <laughs> so, um, one the one question that I had, or mm-hmm. not even question, but observation, when Vincent Price first steps in to this house or this manor that he's uh, yeah. inherited, there was one camera angle which reminded me so specifically of how Tim Burton depicted and shot Edward Scissorhands, the house that he lived in. Like, I almost kind of imagined that manor, but broken down over, like, a couple hundred years, is the house that Edward Scissorhands lived in. And I wonder if Burton has seen this. I mean, obviously, he was a Vincent Price fan, putting yeah. him in Edward Scissorhands. So I just, I, I, I wondered about that. He de- he, he, he's definitely, he's definitely a fan of this film. I mean, the, the house stuff, and, like, you can tell, like, other filmmakers, like Barry Levinson, when he made, like, Adam's family movies, even though it's based on the show and the, and the comic strip, you could tell like certain like elements of this and like Corman's stuff with like ma- making these grand, like creepy, like mansions, but look like more, you know, like, and yeah, Burton, especially you could tell. Cause yeah, like you said, he, he's a huge Vincent Price fan. So putting him like not only in Edward Scissorhands, but also the short film Vincent, which is a fantastic um, short animated film he did when he was, I think he was still working for Disney at that point, which is just funny. Like, yeah, he got to start, you know, animating for Disney. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, yeah, that is a little, uh, a little strange. A little <laughs> um, but no, oh man, the, yeah, I mean, Vincent Price, like his, his dulcet tones, like his, uh, I don't know, oh. there, there's, there's something about him. And I love that because you mentioned um these older actors i know that was one of the things that aip was good for mm-hmm. for vincent price was kind of keeping him relevant because a lot of his contemporaries were either kind of falling out of popularity or they were trying to switch over to tv which was yeah. not the medium it was now and so right. aip and roger corman and these poe films kind of kept him in the public consciousness and until you know like later filmmakers come around and appreciate him like hey let's bring this guy back let's appreciate him for who he is even if um, one of those filmmakers was John Landis, who was a notorious piece of shit, but that's not well, the over there. Well, it's funny you say it because it's true because, you know, AIP, you know, um, Samuel Arkoff, you know, like they loved the old actors because one, it gave their films someone like and Lon Chaney Jr. And, mm. you know, it gave that gravitas for a lesser price than some other more contemporary actors. And 
um, Corman even says that um, AIP wanted um, Boris Karloff for the role of Simon Orne. Mm. And Corman was like, you know, he loved working with Karloff he, and loved him and everything. But he's like, no, he's like, Lon Chaney was much better as that kind of a character, as, as this, like, basically hulking brute of a caretaker that mm-hmm. will serve his master to the end. It doesn't matter what happens. I will always be there for my master. The the one change that I'm, I'm still wondering, what I think about it, does it improve, does it take away, was even Kerwin's involvement in Ward... In the story, it's actually Ward invokes him. Ward does a lot of is doing a lot of research on this ancestor that I had and what was he trying to do and like he basically he picks up the work where his ancestor left off and then right oops right. I've I've now summoned back up my ancestor who is going to kill me and take over my body and and do that. Whereas in the film, it's it's much my my wife just walked in and I don't know whether it was the right or wrong part of that conversation, but the the look that she gave me was wonderful. I wish I I could have a picture of it. Um, but the but then in the film, you almost get the sense that there's no choice. Kerwin curses it, and like he comes back just because he's this this omnipresent evil force, and because his ancestor has returned. So it's almost like I, I wrote in the notes. I think like these characters were doomed from the start, which is something we go back to on these adaptations in Lovecraft stories a lot. Where as soon as he's like, "Oh, I've inherited a manor. I will go inherit." It's like. Well, fuck! You're done now, buddy. Yeah, yeah. You should have you should have torn up that that deed, like the, like the townsfolk said. You should have ripped it up. <laughs> yeah, just like leave, get out of here. Just it's not good. Like don't go into that freaking house because. But it's it's funny because like the whole the, my whole feeling is that when, once Ward is back in the town of Arkham, I think it was all like a cycle of, well, why would he all of a sudden have this manner you know like like what made this you know um blood relative get the manner you know what i mean like there were other people before right like yeah yeah, yeah. Been old, yeah. but i, but I kind of like that that for some reason he had to pick that point like this this perfect descendant that looks just like himself like you know what i mean it's like the blood that's why he gets him yeah and once he gets back into the palace He's doomed. Like it doesn't matter. Like once he took, once he opened that those big, those two big doors, he's doomed. Not only himself, not only his wife, but the world. And he didn't know it. He, it's not his fault at all. Like you're like this poor guy. He was just he thought he lucked out on this great manner that like his family had, but not realizing how 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 this manner was before. But again. It's like if you find out, oh yeah, my my husband, you know, like like my husband's family killed a bunch of people in this castle. <laughs> Why would I get tormented from it? But it's like, what do we learn from any film that once when you get this like a lawyer that says, hey, you have this uh, beautiful house in like another town, just just don't go. <laughs> just just sell say, it. you know what, sell it off the mark. Don't even look at it. Like, cause that's a thing. Well, I how what I need to see what this place. No, don't look at it. Just <laughs> sell it, rip it up, go back home to Boston. You'd be happier. You know, I, I've actually since so since I read a snippet of that quote about what Lovecraft thinks of Republicans, I wonder why <laughs> more Republicans aren't into Lovecraft. Because if you think about what happens in a lot of his stories, there's a lot of invocation to the past and how you know things always were done there's um this idea of purity of bloodline specifically a eurocentric bloodline um and there is also uh this thread of science typically being wrong <laughs> so, right i mean you would think right like more especially where the republican party has gone um yeah. it's it, it's almost like a perfect snapshot of the lovecraft uh you know people in lovecraft stories i don't know I guess the the one one question that I have before we wrap this yeah. all up is uh so the the thing that Lon Chaney Jr. was keeping in the attic, not it wasn't Lon, Ta- Lon Chaney Jr. It was um oh. Leo Gordon's character uh, oh, Whedon. Okay, yeah, Ezra Whedon. It's I think that's his son because He's, okay when his when his wife says what's wrong with him today like like he's more animated than usual and he says. 
it's not a him, it's it. You know what I mean? So he, the way he speaks about it, it's like it's this disgusting thing up there. But I think it's like his son that's been changed. Okay. That's what that's the way he got tormented because I think he, I think his wasn't Edgar Whedon the the guy that was supposed to be with that woman that was okay. taken. Oh, okay, maybe. Okay, maybe that. Okay, well, that's that's one part of the question. The second question yeah. is what what then happened to him? Didn't he get burnt with him? Was that okay? Maybe yeah. They were. Remember, they're they were... like rolling around and like it was. It's like really horrible because like they're fighting, and then they like basically this beast of a son, let's just say, just grabs his father and like they fly, like they they roll into the Fire into the fireplace yeah, okay. and yeah. they just burn and you're like, oh god, like. But it's it is creepy because when the funeral's going on, like you assume it's just the husband, you know, just. Yeah, Ezra. But is it also the son? Maybe that's the way that oh, I can bury my son now because he's so burnt. You can't see how horrific he looked. What if their bodies kind of got like twisted and burned together? Like the thing. Like and the then thing. and then over time, yeah, these these Arctic <laughs> explorers come and find us. Like, oh my god, what happened here? <laughs> yeah, that's that's what it was. This is the origin story of the thing. <laughs> right. I think I think we've stumbled upon something here. Yes. But. Um, on that one final note before we kind of wrap up I, I have I'm picking a fight here with Roku so if Mr. Roku <laughs> is listening to this episode um, so if you go on justwatch.com which yeah. I often do and you, you look up The Haunted yeah. Palace it says it's available for free on Prime um, so of course when when time came to watch this movie I sat down in, in, my, in my bedroom and I, I turned on my Roku and I searched for The Haunted Palace and it didn't come up um, the House on Haunted Hill did, um, a whole bunch of other tangentially connected films did, and then one result that came up was the Vincent Price Collection, which included this, and I could watch if I had a subscription to Full Moon, um, that streaming uh, service. You should have told me. I would have given you my uh, ID. Well, so, but then here's what happened. So I went on my laptop and went yeah. to Amazon and typed it in, and sure enough, there it is. But I couldn't access it through my Roku, even though it's available on Amazon. So then what I had to do was, and this is, I realized, such a privileged complaint to have. But then I had to take my laptop, hook the HDMI up to it, and do that kind of thing. So I don't know whether it was my Roku, because it's just like the, the stick that we use in the back. We don't have the full thing. So I, it, it's just, it's annoying to me how it's sort of like, it is available, but it's also not available. And so how does this work? I, yeah, I don't know what it is, because Roku is kind of, I, I, I love, I have, I have, you know, Roku stick in our bedroom and a regular Roku three that's somehow still kicking over these years. But yeah, but it's weird because I feel that happens a lot where you'll search for a film that you know is either streaming on a specific app, but like it won't come up and you're like, wait, where is it? Like, I know it's on Amazon. I know it's on. And then sure enough, you're like, Oh, it's just the Roku's not searching for it correctly. You're yeah. like, how are you not searching for it correctly? I'm giving you the title. It's a little off sometimes, I think. You yeah, know? And, and now I, I could find it. There are versions of this for free on YouTube if you are willing to either look at one version, which A, is blown up, oh. so you're, oh. you're only seeing a portion of the screen, or it's shrunk and in the corner of the screen so that there are like flashy stars in the background as you watch yeah. it. So it, it was just kind of an annoying process to go through because i'm like well honey I'm, I'm gonna go in the bedroom and watch this movie and then like 25 minutes later i was finally watching the movie um it, it was it was quite annoying so um it should be easier to see this film it like it, sh it should absolutely ultimately. be easier to see this film is yeah. what we're saying but um yeah so that's that's a um it is not the the case of charles dexter ward it is the adaptation called the haunting the haunted palace of course which i just blanked on temporarily for some reason <laughs> um email us at you uh nope that's a different email address where's my brain today movies of madness at gmail.com is where is where you can reach us um on twitter james is fistful of media i am nolan fixes teeth castofcthulhu.podbean.com or catch up on all of our back episodes anywhere you find your podcasts apple Podcasts, spotify amazon music Google Play, we are there. November, um, well, I guess first before we get into December, James, what's going on for Thanksgiving? You got anything special planned? I know we're in a pandemic. Um, well, it's funny you say that because the whole time, I mean, I'll give a, a quick little glimpse into my life. Um, yeah, 
don't like to go to restaurants sure. at this time, you know. So, but my dad, you know, was turning seventy. He wanted to do a nice big thing. So, and my girlfriend is especially not into going anywhere. Like, I don't blame her, but because she loves my parents, and she's like, "Let I'll go," and I could tell, and even to myself, like, she's not comfortable with that at all. Mm-hmm. So, I told her, no matter what, for Thanksgiving, it'll just be you and me. I'm off from work the Wednesday and the Thursday, so we can just relax. I'll make like like a turkey breast. I'll make some food. And luckily, I'm thinking to myself, oh, but then my parents, you know, my mom's going to be like, oh, let's go. Luckily, my dad kind of let, let me know without saying, hey, don't worry. You don't have to – we don't have to be with each other because they're going – my parents are going to Atlantic City because they're fucking crazy. Oh, my God. But they're safe. They're good. You know, they, they're not dumb – people so like especially my mom who was during the beginning of this pandemic was like i swear to god hold up in in their apartment and like would not even go into the hallway let alone out and now she's like comfortable enough because she knows the power of masks and wearing them uh-huh. and and you know using you know hand sanitizer you know what i mean like certain things like like Seeing that from my mom and even my dad himself, who I had a fight in the beginning to wear a fucking mask. <laughs> so luckily, it's going to be very low key Thanksgiving. Um, how about you guys? What are you guys doing? Yeah, we're uh, we're staying away from family. Um, yeah, which breaks my heart. My parents oh. are 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 nearby. I mean, they're in New Jersey. It's not that hard, and I can tell my mom really wants us to come by and be socially distant and like i had to stop myself from crying the other day and start being vulnerable people i yeah the pandemic sucks and yeah it 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 may be contrary at first to think about it but to stay away from the people you love you do it because you love them and you want everyone to be taken care of um yeah yeah so my wife and i are we we rented a a suite in a hotel out in state college pennsylvania but um even you know People may be skeptical of Pennsylvania, but the hotel hasn't ensured us that the room would be clean. There wouldn't be anyone staying in it 24 hours before we got there. Um, okay. State college, though Penn State is there, the college is, you know, students will be will be out because the semester is over. So the town itself will be relatively empty. Um, and we're even not doing anything. We're basically just getting a hotel suite so we have more room and we can be out of the city and out of our apartment and somewhere else. We're not going to be doing a whole lot of shopping or going out or even though yeah. if we did, we were told that, um, in state college, there is a $300 fine if you are seen in town without wearing a mask on. So, wow. yeah, no. So that's well, wonderful. I wonder if they enforce that because the MTA, you heard about the enforcement and 10 people, 10, 10 tickets have been given since the beginning of, uh, yeah. the MTA. I'm like, only I've, 10 i've seen more than 10 without that are not wearing masks yeah, I, I, yeah so have i <laughs> um that's yeah. good that's good be, yeah so basically what we're saying just be safe okay yeah don't, so, don't be stupid yeah it'll it'll be it'll be just us i even we even wanted to like you know go by to some a college friend that i have nearby and like see them outdoors but we're even canceling that because we just like yeah. You think your your immediate bubble is just like, well, I've, well, it's only been me and my wife. But then like, yes, but who has your wife been seeing and who has that person been seeing? Right. And, and it gets a lot larger. So we're we're getting out of town, but we're staying safe. It'll be just the two of us. We'll, we'll be doing uh, – the only real traditions I have on Thanksgiving are watching the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, which itself will be scaled back. And then yeah. um, James is a New Yorker. Maybe this is a thing that you are aware of as well. Every <laughs> – Every Thanksgiving day at noon, Q104.3 plays Arlo Guthrie's um, Alice's Restaurant, and so I'll, yep. I'll listen to that, and then that's after that is when I call my parents and check in on them, because I know my mom is listening as well, so, um, <sighs> yeah. yeah, it's, it's you know, it, it's, it's heartbreaking, but people wear a mask, stay away, because, the, you know, the, we're trending in the wrong direction right now. Yeah, but again, I always say that's because of people that are selfish, and... <laughs> They don't care because, you know, oh, I don't have any symptoms, so I don't have it. No, you have it. You just don't get sick from it. Mm-hmm. But you, you, all your grandparents and parents that are older, mm-hmm. you just fucking killed them. Like, <laughs> stay home. Okay? Yeah, really. Stay stay home. Listen, I know it sucks. We're all feeling it. But also, it, you know, if we all play our part, it's going it's going to get better. And especially we right. have it. We have an administration coming in that believes in science. How refreshing. <laughs> 
wow yeah well yeah that's a whole other thing too <laughs> <laughs> but, uh but away from downer things we want to talk about happier things because yes. this is the end mm-hmm. of november which means december is coming up new movies new guests new everything so december uh i i don't know i can't recall if we talked about it but we can confirm for december we'll be talking uh reviewing the whisper in darkness from 2011 and the call of cthulhu in two, from 2005 um we're going to be doing the whisper in darkness first yeah because we want the call of cthulhu to kind of be a special christmas episode for reasons that i won't reveal just yet but yeah it's pretty awesome we're very excited and also nervous <laughs> which is which to me is the best it shows that we care yeah if we're nervous you know what i mean like if we didn't care at all we're like eh whatever because <laughs> yeah, when people when people realize they're like oh no wonder okay yeah because Mo- most of the time i don't want to say most of the time we don't care but uh you know let's say <laughs> uh recording this james just woke up i haven't showered and we're doing this episode so <laughs> we're uh we're not gonna be able to get away with that for this very special christmas episode no. of the call of cthulhu which once again you will have to stay tuned as to what uh, will be happening with that one. But um, to the listeners, to James, happy Thanksgiving to all of you. Um, Please stay safe, stay happy, stay healthy. Next week we'll be, not next week, next time we'll be talking about The Whisper in Darkness. But in the meantime, we'll be waiting and dreaming with Dead Cthulhu in his house in Relia. Relia.